Last week, as we were continuing to look at Romans chapter 1, we were asking the question, what is a Christian? And we were looking at some of the indications there of what it means to be a real Christian. Obviously, the word gets used in all kinds of ways today, but we wanted to see, what does the Bible say? And we saw a Christian is someone who, who serves God and worships God in the way they work for him. Someone who speaks with God, someone who is open to receive more from God and so on. This week, we're going to move on and see what, what is a church? What is, and again, it's a word that is used a lot uh, and a word that has got a different meaning to different people. We want to see what, what's the Bible understanding of church. So if you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read uh, from verse 8, Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. We saw last week, among other things, how Paul is saying uh, that uh, how how he longs to come to them. Verse 11, I long to come to to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. And we were uh, looking, among other things, at the, the fact that Uh, that when you become a Christian, there's always more to receive. There's always more gifts to receive from God, and we need to be open to God and say, I want more, continually, I want more. And as Paul says that, he says, I long to impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. He kind of hastily corrects himself or adjusts what he's just said. He says, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He's saying how he's wanted to come, and up to now, he's been frustrated. Different things have happened. I've planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so. He wants to visit them because he wants to impart something to them. But then he says, but actually, it's not just one way. He said, so that we can be mutually encouraged. He doesn't see himself then as kind of the the visiting speaker, and he will just deliver to them. He sees he has a role towards them, but they've got a role towards him. That's our first glimpse of what is church. What is church? It's something where people have a, a mutual role towards each other. That's the way he sees it. Now, of course, that's not how church is generally Perceived. It's not how people generally think of church. And in fact, if you delve back into the history of the church, you'll see that it was quite soon after this, certainly by the time you get into the second century, that things changed 
that you begin to see a professional kind of ministry. Different titles are given. And as time goes on, you get the kind of robed professional who is called the reverend this, or even the very reverend, or right reverend, and so on. And, and then you get the, just the ordinary people. So titles, and some, if you uh, move into other kinds of churches, the guy is called father. In other churches, he's called the pastor. But a specialized ministry, sometimes wearing a different kind of collar, and on Sunday, robes. And then you get the, what are called the laity, the ordinary people, who are basically there as spectators of the professional. That's the way it developed very quickly, where people then got promotion through the ranks of the professionals until ultimately you could become a bishop and have a throne and people would kneel before you and kiss your ring and all of that kind of stuff very quickly came in. At the beginning, it wasn't like that. The sort of thing that Jesus started was not like that. You turn to see what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22. A very significant occasion. It's Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he knows he's going to his death. And he's looked forward to that last meal with them. But it's pretty scandalous, really, what happened at that last meal. Jesus knows in a few hours... He's going to be killed. And he's having this meal with the friends that he loves. And it says in Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. So Jesus is having his last meal with his friends, and his friends, bless their hearts, are arguing with each other which of them is the most important. Jesus is looking for support from them. And they are just concerned about who's the most important. So you see, it started early on. So a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus is obviously the greatest. And he says, but I'm here to serve you. It shall not be like that, he says, among you, where you're just wanting profile, you're wanting promotion, you want to be, to be known as Mr. Big. John fills in, in his gospel, fills in some of the further detail of what was happening there. And in John chapter 13, we read that Jesus, at that meal, to show them that he was one who serves, got down and washed their feet. That was outrageous to Peter, who tended to speak before engaging his brain. He says, no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And then Jesus goes on to say, do you realize what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's what I am. 
But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. For I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. And Jesus is the master. We're not greater than him. And he serves. Jesus shows something revolutionary here. Something unlike anything you see anywhere else in the world. The church is unlike anything you see anything else in the world. And woe betide us if we start organizing church according to business principles or according to the kind of way we see things managed in the world. The church is meant to lead the world, not the the world lead the church. And Jesus is showing leadership in the church is a humble leadership. It's a leadership that serves. It's not about profile. It's not about, about title. It's about being like our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, uh, he said some radical things in John chapter 15, verse 14. He says to these people who are there, uh, he's gathered them around him to be his disciples. And he says to them, you are my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. These guys are going to be the leaders of this new movement. The basis of their relationship is not their qualifications. Jesus doesn't take up references from previous employers. They don't apply for the job and get interviewed or whatever. No, they're friends. It's essentially informal people who just like each other. They like being around each other. They're friends. It's not about some profession. That's how it starts. A group of friends who share with one another. Paul then is saying, when I come to you, I want to impart some spiritual gift. But no, it's mutual. He doesn't want to be the one who's giving. Sadly, the, the, the traditional way it works, you get the leader of the church, the minister or whatever, and he is just giving out to people who kind of soak up, either, either soak up what he says or object to what he says, but nonetheless, he's giving. And what you see is, in that traditional way of doing things, leaders often just get burned out because they're just expected to give all the time. No, The Bible ways, it's mutual. Yeah, there are those who give out, but everyone actually is giving out. We're mutually encouraged by one another's faith. If it's just one way, that's not God's pattern. God's pattern, Paul, as he goes on to expound it in this letter, God's pattern is for the church to be like a body. In chapter 12, he he gets into that. He says, verse 4, in chapter 12, just as each each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. It can't be more straightforward than that. In our body, every part is receiving from and giving to. There's nothing in our body that just has a kind of one-way traffic, just giving out. The the body is totally mutual. And, And Paul says, that's what the church is like. We give to one another encourage one another. And so it's great this morning in a a group of, what, 230 people or thereabouts, you've got different people taking part. And 
praise God for every contribution, which is so edifying. It makes us strong to hear from one another. That's what church is intended to be, one body. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, where everyone has a contribution. Someone brings a tongue, someone brings a word of teaching, someone brings a revelation or whatever. But everyone has a contribution. Church is not the professionals and the spectators, but it's a body where all work together. Does that mean then that we're all equal? Well, yes and no. Yes, in terms of our status, we're all equal. There is no one who is greater than anyone else in the church. All are equal in value before God and therefore of equal value in the church. We're all members one of another. Are we equal? Yes. But in another way, we need to recognize that there are distinctions of what God gives. And so Paul is not embarrassed to say, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. And he says, I want to come and I want to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. So there are distinctions of grace, but no distinctions of status. We're all equal in terms of status, but God gives gifts and we honor gifts. See, the danger is, and this has happened in church history, That when you say everyone has a contribution, then you draw the conclusion that we're all equal, and so you end up in a kind of democracy. And so there are churches that are organized on that kind of basis, that every member has a vote, the leader has only one vote along with everyone else, and so the church moves on the majority vote. And so churches will have it written into uh, their, 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 their deeds or whatever that a two-thirds majority is enough to carry on. And it, it's abominable. But on that basis, there's no recognition of anointing, there's no recognition of leadership, and you always go at the pace of the slowest. No, Paul says, I want to come and impart some spiritual gift to you. He knows God has anointed him to do that. But he also knows he needs them. And he needs the encouragement that comes from them. So there is leadership in the church. There is gift. There is anointing. We recognize that. But we don't sit passively and receive it. That we are all involved in this wonderful thing that God has designed that actually shows what God is like to a world that needs to know what God is like. Let's get hold of it. Let's see it. Let's value it. And so what Paul says here, he's not just being polite when he says, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged. He doesn't say, oh, maybe it sounds a bit arrogant. I said, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. I better just put that right. No, he's not just being polite. Saying this is is important. It's important that they don't just receive him and listen, but rather that they, they just enjoy fellowship together. And that he is encouraged by them. He receives from their faith and they receive what he has to give to them. And what he has to give to them is the particular gift that God has given him. And that he he makes it clear um, in uh, verse 15. He says, I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. That's what he wants to do. Now that could equally be translated, in fact more accurately translated... That's why I'm so eager to evangelize you also who are in Rome. That's what he says. 
says, I, I'm eager to evangelize you in Rome. Now, of course, we know what the word evangelize means. It means to go out and preach the gospel to people who are not yet believers. It means to share who Jesus is with people who don't yet know who Jesus is. That's what it means to evangelize. But wait a minute, who's he speaking to here? In verse 7, he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He says in verse 6, you are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He is writing here to people who do believe in Jesus, who have been saved. They have been called by God. They belong to him. And he says, now I want to come and evangelize you. What on earth is he talking about here? Does he doubt the reality of their salvation? Does he feel that they need a good gospel address to make sure they really are saved? No, he knows they're saved. He says, you are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are loved by God and called saints. They are already Christians. The gospel is God's good news. The whole message is God's announcement of good news about his son. People who are not yet believers need to hear that. But people who are already believers need to keep hearing God's great announcement. He has good news to declare and we need to keep hearing it. And this letter is a summary of the good news. 16 chapters of good news. And it's all the gospel. You don't just separate some of it out and say, well, that little bit is the gospel. The gospel is about who Jesus is, what is done, and my need to repent and believe. That's the gospel. That's part of it. But it's much more than that. And Paul is introducing them here in these 16 chapters to the good news. This is God's announcement. It's a summary of the gospel. And, it's worth pointing out, it is only a summary. The unique Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as many of you will know, spent some 13 years from 1955 through to 1968 expounding this letter to the Romans to his congregation in London. He didn't finish it. He was cut short in 1968 when he was taken ill, and he was three chapters short of the end. He says how someone, uh, with a bit of a smile on their face, said to him as he is expounding systematically, word by word, through this wonderful letter, someone said to him, when you see the Apostle Paul, you'll probably find how surprised he is at how much you have got out of this letter. The doctor's response was, I have a feeling he'll be surprised to see how little we got out of this letter. Thirteen years to get through just 13 chapters. Because what the doctor was saying was, this is just a summary. And he drew attention to what happened in Acts chapter 19. Let's look at what happened in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, you read how Paul arrives in Ephesus. And uh, in verse 9, it says how Paul took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and this went on for two years. Every day for two years, Paul is expounding the gospel. 
Some texts of the New Testament have some extra words in there, which says, translating into our kind of timing, every day from 11 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He had discussions daily from 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. And this went on for two years. I did a quick calculation, or my calculator helped me. That means 3,650 hours of expounding the gospel. Translated into preaching for an hour a week, 70 years. (laughs) Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones took a mere 13. Yeah, the Apostle Paul would be surprised to see how little we get out of it. The gospel is massive. The gospel is so rich. It's not just a little message. We can't just reduce it to points one, two, and three. The gospel is essential. There are things we need to hear if we're going to, if we're going to believe. See, it's, it's about faith. It's called justification through faith or righteousness that is by faith from first to last, Paul says in verse 17 here. In order to have faith, we need the facts to believe. You can't just become a Christian because you've decided to start going to church. That doesn't make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian just by deciding to mix with Christians. That doesn't make you a Christian. There are certain essentials. We need to believe in Jesus and not just believe the name, but to believe the Son of God became man. We need to believe that. We need to believe the wonderful message that the Son of God who became man, became a man in order to identify with us, be like us, and live a life without sin amongst us so that he could take on himself our sin, our guilt, and bear the penalty for it in our place. We need to believe that. We need to believe that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose from the dead, that he's alive now. People need to know that Jesus is alive now, and to believe that, they need to believe that he's ascended to heaven and he's given his Holy Spirit. There are basic facts that without that, we're not saved. And so it needs to be preached. But then having heard that, that's just like the bare bones. Because Jesus has ascended to heaven, given his Holy Spirit to enable us who have come to faith in him to now live by faith in him. What does that mean? What does it mean to live as a Christian? We need to hear the good news. We need to hear the good news that we can live a totally transformed life. We need to know what it means that we're no longer under a kind of obligation to always get it wrong. We can actually win in some areas where we always fail. We need to hear that's good news. It's good news if you realize that you have sinned and you need a savior. When you realize how bad you are, then you don't want to just be left bad. You need to realize the good news. You can change. God can deliver you from your fears, as we heard this morning. God can bring you through serious operations. And if you heard Graham's story, the timing of God's interventions, amazing. It's good news. This is our God. It's good news. we, We need to hear it. If we're going to live for God... There's some facts we need because faith needs 
facts. And so Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Yeah, they've heard the gospel in order to be saved. But now they need to hear the gospel in order to live for Christ. We need to know who we are. We need to know who God is. We need to know what God's will is. We need to understand these things. It's not just about a decision initially, shall I become a Christian or not? And sometimes people can think in those terms. when, When the gospel is first presented to them, the big choice is, shall I become a Christian? That's actually not the issue. The issue is, who are you and who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The question is not what shall I do about Christianity, but what shall I do about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive now and who I will face one day. That's the issue. And we need to understand it. And then having come to know him, we need to understand what it means to be in this new life. So Paul wants to declare that to them. And we see something of his own convictions. For example, in chapter 8, he just makes some, some very clear statements. Paul has had time to think all of this through. He says in verse 18 of chapter 8, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's, that's a profound thing to understand. That's good news. Because we go through difficult circumstances. Do, do, do difficult circumstances mean God doesn't really love me? That's an immature response to things that go wrong. No, Paul's come through. He says, I consider that these sufferings, they don't compare with what's ahead. The glory that's ahead, it trivializes almost what we're going through because of what God's got for us. We need to understand that. We need to believe it. He goes on to say, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Do you know that? We need to hear it preached. As we hear it preached, faith can come. God works for the good of those who love him, have been called according to his purpose. Paul is convinced of these things. We need to understand. In chapter 6, he makes an amazingly profound statement, which in some years' time we will come to and uh, expound at some length. But in in chapter 6, verse 6, he says, We know, and the question is, do we? We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That is transforming, if you believe it. We know it, he says. Do we? Do we realize? Do we understand that our life can change, the things that which, which were besetting problems for us, we always failed in that area, no longer a slave to it? Why aren't we? We need to hear it preached. We need to get hold of it. Paul says, I want to come and preach the gospel to you. We hear a lot these days about quality of life. A lot of medical decisions are made on the basis of assessing quality of life. I would suggest our quality of life depends on what we believe. What do we believe? What's our gospel? Have we understood the truth? Quality of life depends on what we believe. And Paul wants these people to believe some stuff. He says, I want to preach the gospel. He says, I'm bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks both to the wise and the foolish, or I'm under an obligation 
to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. A barbarian means, uh, to us that can mean someone who's absolutely wild and uh, untamable. Uh, it was the way the Greeks, in their somewhat arrogant mindset, reviewed everyone who didn't speak Greek. The word barbarian is, now we can get a bit technical here, this will mean something to some of you, so if you want to really show off, nod when I say this. The word barbarian is an onomatopoeic word. Ah, oh, some are nodding, that's great. <laughs> it's a word that refers to something that it sounds like. And for those who spoke Greek, anyone who didn't speak Greek, Greek seemed to be just kind of babbling like ba 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 it's just nonsense just babbling and so they call them barbarians barbarians and so uh, Paul says I'm bound to these arrogant Greeks who think they're so intellectual and these others from other races are the wise the foolish he says I've got an obligation to all different kinds of people all races all levels Everyone needs to hear this good news. Paul says, I'm bad. I, I owe it to them. Because God has given him an anointing. God has given him a message. And when, when you're given something to pass on, if you don't pass it on, you're in their debt. And Paul says, I've been given something wonderful to pass on to, to all races, all levels, the intellectual, the thick, and everyone in between. He said, I want to share good news because he wants to see lives changed. What's church? Church is people together, friends, where people are blessing one another, encouraging one another. It's not a spectator thing. It's people in it together. But in it, there is together a corporate desire. We want to know more about God. And so central to it is the preaching of God's good news. People together as friends together, reveling in God's announcement of a whole new way of living through Jesus Christ. Now Paul says, he says, I, I'm, he says, I, I want you to know that I plan many times to come to you. I've been prevented. So I want to come in order that I may have, might have a harvest among you, or that I might have fruit among you. Now here you see Paul's confidence. He wants to preach this message because he knows it will produce fruit. He doesn't have overmuch confidence in his own ability to communicate. We see that elsewhere when he's writing to the Corinthians. He makes it quite clear. He doesn't rate himself as much of a speaker. He doesn't have a lot of confidence in his own ability. He says to the Corinthians that when he was among them, he, he felt trembling and full of fear just confronting these people. So he wasn't super confident. He didn't reckon him, he was a very good speaker. And we read from other accounts, not in the Bible, that not only that, but he was a particularly ugly man. It's apparently short, bow-legged, hook-nosed, eyebrows meeting in the middle. Not the kind of charismatic character that maybe we would think, hey, he sounds worth listening to. Not much of a speaker and not much of to look at either. 
But he knows he's going to get fruit. Why? Because this is God's word. And it's what God's word does. It produces fruit. That's why he wants to preach. Not because he likes the sound of his own voice. Not because he likes position. He likes to have everyone listening to him. But he's got treasure here. And he knows that when he, with his faltering speech and not particularly pleasant appearance, he knows that when he brings God's word, it will do something. It will produce fruit. It's not just words. It's God. This book is not just words. This book is breathed out by the Spirit of God. That's how it came to be written. And when we preach from this book, the Spirit of God who gave this book is working in the people who listen. When we speak from this book, two things are happening. We're speaking and God is working. That's the fact. And so Paul knows that when he preaches this wonderful gospel, things will happen. This message creates faith. It awakens faith. Paul says that in in chapter 10 of this letter, verse 17. He says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. And so, I can be confident this morning, not that I've done a lot of preparation, not that I'm a good speaker, none of that. And not that I look anything, I know that isn't true. But, God's word works. And so, I can be confident that just speaking from God's word this morning, faith will come on different issues. People get hold of different things, but faith comes. And it's wonderful the way that happens because sometimes people will come to me and say, you know when you're speaking on such and such the other week, God really spoke to me about this. And when I hear what God spoke to them about, I think, I know I never said that. But what I did say created faith. And that faith led to something. And they think I said it. Well, I'm happy to bask in the, and get the credit for it. But I know I didn't say it. But it was God's word that brought faith. And it does that. It it pierces people's conscience. You see, we can listen to God's word and we've got all kinds of barriers up, all kinds of preconceptions, but the wonderful thing about God's word is it gets behind the barrier because the spirit of God doesn't just stop at barriers. He is sovereign. And as we bring God's word, the spirit of God gets into people's consciences. And the the writer to the Hebrews says that in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. He says there, the word of God is living and active. Important. It's living. It's alive. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's God's word. It's, It's a privilege to handle this because it's alive and it does things. And, of course, it does things in all different types of people. Paul says the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. We could say the young, the old. I tell you, it's thrilling. Last Sunday afternoon in our kids' core, just speaking to the kids, primary age kids, and saying, now, what did you hear this morning? And they start sharing. These little children who we would say, oh, they can't possibly understand, start telling me what I've been preaching on. They heard it. They heard it. They may wriggle. They may fidget. 
They may look all around the building because children do. But God's word penetrates and people hear things and little children can get saved. Little children can move out in faith. God's word gets behind whatever barrier we might put up and whatever barrier we think uh, is there for other people. God's word sets people free. John said, uh, Jesus said in John 8, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. God's word corrects us, trains us, equips us, Paul tells us, writing to Timothy in his second letter. It's wonderful. This, and so Paul knows that when he comes to, to Rome, he will get fruit among them. But of course, the fact is also there that it doesn't kind of happen automatically. The effect of God's word isn't guaranteed totally or automatic. In, and Jesus referred to that. Jesus knew what it was. Of course, he comes from God to bring the word of God. Did everyone receive what he said? No. Did everyone believe? No. Did everyone understand? No. And some so misunderstood him, they killed him. So it's not like the word of God is always effective with everyone. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, he's got large crowds have gathered around him and they're listening. And he said, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds come and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. The image there is of an old-fashioned style of farmer. Nowadays, of course, things are done with uh, a lot of uh, mechanism and so on, but then the farmer would go out just with a kind of bowl of seed and he's scattering it. I know this whole concept uh, will be lost on city dwellers for whom the concept of the great outdoors is the gap between your front door and the car. But for people who know about countryside, seed gets scattered and things grow. You know, that's, just believe me, I know you've never ventured outside of Sheffield, but, but this is a fact. And Jesus says, as seed is scattered, you can't guarantee it's going to grow. The seed can be perfectly good, but it depends where it lands. And so there's this picture of some just landing on where, where the ground is too hard, it doesn't get in. Others, it, the seed lands among too many other things. And so we know as we're preaching, there'll be some whose minds are so cluttered with other things, the desire for other things, just hoping something is said about this, and because it isn't, you just don't hear anything or whatever. That can be there. Others are just immune. And then there'll be good soil good soil that receives the seed and it grows and it produces fruits. It's not automatic. Good seed needs good soil. The word of God needs to be received. And Paul is under no illusions about that. He, he knows he's going to have fruit among them, but he also knows that God's word doesn't work in people who are not disposed to hear it. Jesus said that his sheep 
hear his voice. And we need to make sure that we hear what God says. We are responsible to hear. This is a wonderful, wonderful word. And Paul wants to bring it. He wants to see people saved, but he wants to see Christians getting hold of the truth and living as real Christians. So what is church? Real church is a body of people that's devoting itself to building one another up, where there is absolutely no sense of just going to church on a Sunday. So Sunday comes, you think, which church shall I go to today? Oh, I think I'll go to City Church. I think I'll go to this one or that one. And you're just there as a spectator. If you're here in that capacity this morning, great to have you here, but you need to belong somewhere. You need to belong somewhere where actually you are then able to bless others and they're blessing you. There's a sense of being a body together. A body is joined together. It's not enough just to look in, dip in and out from time to time. There is no part of my body, I'm glad to say, that dips in and out from time to time. I'm glad to say my body is joined together. And, uh, you know, there are some things that do drop off, but um, on the whole, it's joined and the church needs to be joined together where there's a sense of mutual care for one another and, and a climate of faith so that we're encouraging one another with our faith. We're not just passive. We're not negative. But a climate of faith that builds one another up. What is church? It's a body devoted to being together and also centered on receiving God's word. Not just everyone doing their own thing, but recognizing the importance of God's word, receiving it, and working it through so that the whole thing grows. And there's something then that others can see. Now, that's already happening there in Rome. Paul is able to say, I thank God your faith is being reported all over the world. They're a great church, and they're not frightened of letting their faith be known in a city where it is dangerous to be known as a Christian. No, they, are, they're, they're, they haven't given in to political correctness or any other fear. They are letting it be known. Paul knows they're a great church, but he knows he's got something for them. And he knows he's got truth to teach them. When they get hold of it, they're going to really blossom. There's going to be fruit amongst them. That's church. Our response then is to value both. We value being part of it. And we want to make sure we are actually encouraging other people with our faith. We're not just receiving, we're giving. We want to value that. And we want to value God's word and not just let it bounce off like seed falling on a path. So I want to receive it. And I'll receive it with faith. Because I want things to grow.